0: Welcome everyone, we are live from the bunker, the super-secret underground bunker at World Headquarters. My name is Jason Hunt, I am the editor here at SciFiForMe.com. 30 years in the media, which means I can make things up and you'll never know the difference. (laughs) Or something like that. The live chat is open for those who are attending live, and uh, we will uh, be talking here for a second uh, live with uh, Nadia Afifi. She is joining us here shortly. First of all, let's go ahead and tell you about, let me find the button here, superhero stuff.com. You can save 10% when you use the promo code Sci Fi for me10 at checkout. It can be used in combination with other offers. Just use that promo code, and then when you save that money, you can give it to us. We've got a Subscribestar account, we've got a PayPal link, and that's how we do that. So welcome everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, we For those who are watching live, no H2O last night because of the National Football League. I had to work... On the Skycam crew, which was originally supposed to happen on Sunday, and then they moved the game, and then they moved the game again, so uh, we had to make an adjustment. So instead of taking our bye week on Columbus Day next week, we took it last night, so we will have an episode next Monday. Sometimes I am busy enough, I need three of me. So uh, somebody needs to get to work on that cloning tank. Speaking of clones, see how I did that, uh, are joining us now from Denver, Colorado, author Nadia Afifi. Welcome.
1: Hey, Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for being here. And your book uh, features cloning. So let's let's get into that. It is called The Sentient. Mm-hmm. It is uh, it is currently out, uh, I think dropped on September the 8th. I think is that right? Uh, correct. Okay, so this book involves cloning, and religion, and politics, and all of the third rail things that you're never supposed to talk <laughs> about or include in a story. So, uh, not bad for a first for a first novel. <laughs> right?
1: So yeah, a little was... bit ambitious. Want to tackle all the all the fun stuff in one.
0: So, where did the idea come from? Then, as far as as far as that particular story, you've done some short fiction. And you have mm-hmm. this idea now. Hey, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna take the leap and do my my first big book. What was the What was the process in developing that?
1: I I started formulating the idea for the sentient um, probably back when I first moved to Denver in 2012. I had always wanted to write a novel and finally decided I was I was going to take the plunge and do it. Um, the initial inspiration was um, trying to create a sort of contrarian uh, story about human cloning. You know, I've always found cloning really interesting as a concept, but whenever you see it featured in movies or novels or in any kind of popular culture, it's always framed as a negative, like something we should not try to do. Um, it always ends badly. There's always something fundamentally wrong with the clone. And I want to write a story where cloning is not necessarily the problem. It's sort of the conflict comes from religious opposition to the cloning. And that's a, a big feature of the story is um, you know, this main character escaped from a religious compound because uh, in the future there's a very polarized society where you have um, kind of a very modern progressive, of city culture and then you have these fundamentalist compounds in the American Southwest that practice a very futuristic kind of religion that does incorporate some science but um, she escapes from that um, life and uh, joins the cities and becomes an ambitious neuroscientist and uh, gets assigned to a controversial cloning project. They're trying to create the first human clone and it's not going well and um, it turns out, you know, without giving too much of the book away, that there is a conspiracy um, to kind of stop the cloning project from succeeding. So basically, the premise is not cloning is horrible. It's um, what happens when people try to um, sabotage it.
0: It always seems like uh, cloning, there, there's always a conspiracy somewhere around, right? I mean, you, you right. look at that. Uh, Vicky Vicks in the chat says, yay, Nadia. Sci-fi Snobs says they, they fought a whole war over clones, uh, and if you go back and you look at the Clone Wars, there's a whole conspiracy around that. Is, is it? Is it almost a given at this point that if you've got a government agency of some kind in your book, that somehow there has to be a conspiracy as well? Is that? A, are we? Is that? Are we at the that as our default now? <laughs>
1: It does seem that way, that government can never really be a benign or neutral force, or at least it it can't be black and white, right? There's always some agency trying to sabotage um, things. And in my future, it actually isn't so much um, government. Uh, There's, you know, the city where my story is set in Westport, there's almost like um, a city within a city called Aldwych where it's almost like the Vatican city. They have a little bit of control and autonomy, um, but, you know, not complete control, but it's kind of a district that's focused on scientific research and all of these kind of powerful uh, corporations kind of pioneer all the scientific research. They're doing research up in space. They have satellites orbiting the earth. They have all these like groundbreaking technologies coming out there. And one of those is the cloning project. Uh, government is kind of uh, not a big feature in my novel. It it might be in the series, you'll see a little bit more of that, but for the first novel, the conflict is really between my main character kind of trying to do the right thing, trying to make a life for herself, um, kind of these big shadowy uh, corporate powers and then kind of religious uh, movements that are in opposition to that.
0: Now, the opposition to the cloning that comes from the religious organization, is that mostly having to do with the presence of the soul and personhood, or is it, is it broader than that? How, how are you positioning the religious organizations? Because a lot of time in media, just in Hollywood in general, Uh, Mm -hmm. There there is a tendency to paint with a broad brush that the religious organizations are fundamentalist, hyper conservative, you know, very, very rigid in their thinking and all of these things. Mm -hmm. Are you taking that approach or you are are you a little bit more relaxed in how you're presenting this religious organization? What are their objections to cloning?
1: Um, So for the for the fundamentalist group that comes from these compounds in the southwest, they are what we would kind of consider a pretty um, conservative, um, rigid kind of religious practice. It is a futuristic religion. So they actually believe in parallel universes and, you know, multiverses. Um, They, of course, think that if you're, you know, you good, you go to a better parallel world. And if you're bad, you go to kind of like a hellish alternate reality. Um, So part of their opposition is kind of down to that concept of the soul. They think, you know, these are not naturally created beings by the universe. They're kind of human made, and that makes them threatening, which is a pretty typical trope, I think, when it comes to religious opposition to cloning, that a clone would somehow be a different kind of human or a lesser human. Uh, There's also a bit of a gendered element to it as well, where um, the way they're doing this cloning research is kind of, you know, implanting, you know, an embryonic clone into um, a woman and kind of a woman cloning herself. So it's a very female centric type of cloning. And it's also kind of suggested that they're threatened by that aspect of it, that of women being able to kind of reproduce without men at all, uh, kind of no, like, male assistance to reproduction, and that's obviously going to be threatening to a, a socially regressive movement as well.
0: Now, it, it's it's interesting, that you are the second author uh, who has mentioned uh, he- heaven and hell in the context of extradimensional existence. Uh, we had mm-hmm. uh, Ahmed Amin uh, who is in Kuwait, he's working on a, on a comic book with a superhero with autism, and we were talking to him yesterday, and his, his main character is Enkidu from the Gilgamesh epic, uh, who, has, who yep. has revived in modern day because when he goes to hell, uh, hell being another dimension, uh, you know, a parallel universe, as it were, and he figures out how to escape. And now you're talking here about you know the the religious organization that in your book viewing, I guess heaven and hell as uh, a parallel dimension as well. Is that something that uh, comes from your upbringing in the Middle East? Is that something that is uh, that is in that culture somehow? Because it seems like you know Ahmed is in in Kuwait. You grew up in. Um Saudi Arabia I think, right?
1: Yes, yeah, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. So. Oh,
0: is that a is that a cultural thing? I mean, I'm 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 asking out of ignorance and and because it's something it strikes me as interesting that the both of you mentioned that.
1: Mhm. Uh, Definitely growing up in that part of the world, um, even if your family is not aggressively conservative or religious, it it is kind of around you everywhere. And, um, you know, I definitely studied religion in school, and I think heaven and hell are definitely um, concepts that are instilled in you pretty early on, and they're kind of real intangible things. And I was definitely intrigued by the idea of, you know, giving it a sci-fi dimension where you kind of incorporate the concept of multiverses. Um, I kind of smiled when you mentioned the Epic of Gilgamesh and Enkidu because first draft of my novel, I actually named my cloning project the Enkidu Project and (laughs) decided it was a bit of a mouthful uh, for readers and uh, changed it to the Pandora Project. But yeah, there's clearly some uh, parallel there.
0: The Pandora Project, of course, uh, brings up all sorts of its own uh, mental images and triggers. And, And I would assume that... Uh, it's an ironic uh, naming convention on that project because you know as as we know, the the um, Pandora's box opens up all sorts of problems. are are they are they appreciating the irony of the name of the project in this in this story?
1: Yeah, I definitely made it a little bit tongue-in-cheek as an author, and also the characters have a, have a conversation at one point in the novel where it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. They, they had a reason for naming it that, but then they comment, well, we know how Pandora's story ended. And sure enough, uh, you know, as the conflict rises, uh, it comes to fruition.
0: So what kind of research did you have to do for something like this? Because we are at the point where we've had Dolly the Sheep you know, cloning mm-hmm. cloning is a real thing to a certain point. And there are people out there who understand that it exists, but you don't understand mm-hmm. exactly the process behind it. So, you know, you can have clones that are, you know, grown from an embryo or they're full blown in three days in a machine. We, you know, grow them in a vat mm-hmm. out of this protoplasm thing. How, how accurate and scientifically correct are you applying the cloning process? Did you take a lot of liberties with it or did you try to hew close to what we actually know about the technology?
1: Uh, I tried to do something that was grounded in uh, reality and things that would be plausible. Um, does- Definitely from the cloning standpoint, you know, I don't have a a STEM background and I definitely don't consider myself a hard science fiction uh, author. So I did just about enough research to understand what kind of cloning methodology I wanted to go for, which is kind of the the, the nuclear kind of, you know, transplant into an embryonic cell um, and kind of just research the essentials of that. So it, you know, made sense for the reader and it was plausible Um, but didn't really get aggressively into um, the scientific research of cloning. I definitely read a lot about the ethics and, um, you know, kind of the arguments around cloning, so I could employ those. Um, I actually did a little bit more research around um, consciousness and neuroscience because another element of the book is that my main character, um, her specialty is kind of a sort of memory reading technology. It's called holomantic reading in the novel where She can actually kind of attach wires and a machine to someone's head and kind of dig into their subconscious, ask some questions, extract memories, kind of interpret and analyze their memories. And, you know, again, I wanted to have enough information that I could kind of coherently describe things and a basic reader would go, "Okay, yep, that's fine. I'll go with that. Um, But not really a rigorous, hard sci-fi level of writing.
0: So does this... This memory uh, memory device does it look like the one that Doc Brown was working on in Back to the Future? <laughs> little mechanical suction cups and everything around.
1: That would be cool. Uh, not not quite that dramatic. Um, more like a couple of tasteful uh, pads around your temples, and then everything else is kind of remote. Um, given that it's two hundred years in the future, you want it you don't want it to look too uh, archaic.
0: So. Uh, y- influences on your work because this is a brand new novel this is your first one and you're saying mm-hmm. it's part of a series so i'm assuming you've got several planned you've got some mm-hmm. short fiction out uh reading reading your bio you mentioned here octavia butler ursula leguin uh mm-hmm. kate atkinson isaac asimov the dead russians i like that that reference there <laughs> um i don't see the traditional Influences. A lot of people get into science fiction through Star Trek or Star Wars or Bradbury or maybe mm-hmm. uh, Anne McCaffrey. Are, are you drawing from authors that you've read in any in particular or is it just kind of this soup in the back of your mind that informs your process?
1: I think, in terms of the plots and themes that I come up with, those are kind of from my brain, uh, just things that percolate until they rise to the surface, and I decide I want to make a novel out of it. Um, I I read a lot of sci fi, but it's hard to peg a specific author where I can say that inspired me to write The Sentient. Um, I think the closest would actually be um, Paolo Bacigalupi, who's a Colorado writer as well. And one of my favorite novels that he wrote was The Wind-Up Girl. And I just love the way that it was a kind of near-future sci-fi that had a lot of kind of political themes, you know, with the environmentalism, with um, the biotech kind of exploring a future that is dystopian, but not entirely so. And it's political without really shoving an agenda down your throat. I kind of like books that raise questions, but don't necessarily try to give an answer right away. And I think he's the master at that. So I definitely had the wind-up girl in mind a lot as I was writing The Sentient.
0: Now, that brings up a topic that has been bandied about uh, throughout the, the science fiction literary community for a number of years now, especially as it concerns the Hugos, the idea of writing to entertain versus message fiction. You, you talk about, you know, not hitting, hitting you over head with an agenda message, you know, right there in your face. Mm-hmm. Is, are we at a point, you think, from everything that you've read, from conversations you may have had, are we at a, a cultural divide in the literary world, in the, in the genre itself, where you have people that feel like, uh, well, all science fiction has always been political, and so the the message should be f- first and foremost, front and center, as opposed to the people who are sitting there saying, "Well, no, it has to entertain first If it makes you think, that's a nice byproduct. But at the end of the day, you have to tell a story that pe- that people enjoy. Are are we are we in two separate camps in your experience from what you've been reading and and conversations that you've had do you think?
1: You know it's interesting. Um, I don't know if the camps are necessarily politics versus pure entertainment that sci-fi should be entertainment only. I feel like a lot of the opposition that you're seeing with the Hugos and all of that is really more what kind of politics people have. I mean in my mind science fiction has always been political and it's always been politically um, diverse as well. You know you've had people like, you know, Robert Heinlein, who've had a kind of, you know, more like libertarian, maybe right-leaning bent to their um, to their novels, but it's, you know, obviously still very entertaining and brings up a lot of interesting issues. Then you have more writers on the other end of the spectrum. Um, sci-fi has always been political. I don't think that every sci-fi book necessarily has to be, um, but for me at least, it's kind of hard to write science fiction without having at least some of that in there, you know? I mean, to me, sci-fi is always a little bit of a commentary on the here and now. Um, right. Even set in the future, it's either kind of you know drawing into conflicts we have right now, or maybe even imagining a better world. You know how things could potentially be. Um, you know a more diverse world, a more gender egalitarian world. Um, so I find most sci-fi books I read, it kind of creeps up in a way, um, whether the author maybe intends to or not. Um, yeah it's it's an interesting question um, and I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no,
0: that, no you you answered it just uh, exactly the way i I had hoped. Uh, so <laughs> when you were writing this, and if you're going into you know some of your shorter fiction and and future projects, do you have on your checklist uh, some way of gauging and making sure that you don't cross that line into preaching propaganda as opposed to Mm -hmm. let's present some ideas and start a conversation do you are you conscious of that do you look for that and kind of make sure that you can pull back from that or do you let your beta readers come back and and other people come back with feedback and say yeah a little bit too much here let's let's pull back
1: Yeah. Um, I think I'm definitely conscious of it in the drafting process. And the way that I kind of rein it in is I try to, you know, focus on the world building for the political side of it and not the characters. And what I mean by that is, you know, in my mind, you don't want to create a character who's either like a Mary Sue or kind of represents a particular viewpoint. I prefer to write novels where the wider world creates conditions uh, that kind of force the character to act in a certain way. And the character may not be the perfect moral, you know, compass for how to conduct things, but they, they could be kind of villains, they could be morally ambiguous, but they're presented in an environment where they have to kind of make tough decisions. So like, you know, like going back to the Palabakh Shigalupi example, you know, global warming is a big theme in his Novels, And, you know, he never has a character who kind of gets up on a soapbox and says global warming is bad or this is a problem. But, you know, the characters are forced to live in a world to do, where climate change is a big deal. Right. And right. the message kind of gets across without it being hammered down people's throats. And, you know, a novel that I'm working on right now uh, gets into kind of pharmaceuticals and like the pharmaceutical industry. And again, the characters all have different opinions. They all kind of take advantage of the system to a point, you know, but um You know, reading the book, there's no ignoring that it's in there and that there's messages to be gleaned. Um, So it's a tricky balance. But I guess my approach is, you know, think about the world, think about the world building and then make sure that your characters are complex and fully formed and don't exist to kind of make a point or a counterpoint.
0: And how much are you uh, prepping as far as the world building goes? Are, are you, you've got spreadsheets and note cards and all sorts of things all over the place. How deep does your, does your well go as far as creating this world before you start working on a story?
1: Uh, I really admire those writers who can do all of that crazy amount of work up front with uh, spreadsheets and tables and character bios. I, I'm definitely not that dedicated. Um, I usually have ideas kind of ahead of writing. And when I'm doing the plot outline, I usually have some key things I take away. But um, I'm always impatient. I always want to jump right into that first draft and then make it perfect down the road. So I tend to world build a little bit as I write. Um and usually about the first quarter of the way through, I have a pretty well-formulated world, and then I can kind of go in and expand on it further.
0: Uh, now, um, the, the the bio on your website says that you're also interested in puzzles. Yes. Uh, is that um, – and this, this may seem like an odd question, but does – Puzzle building, help with the world building, because basically what you're doing here is you're essentially crafting an image with various different pieces and elements. And something that I've said in conversation a number of times is that all of our all of our storytelling now, there's no such thing really as an original story. There's just an original combination of elements. You can take bits and pieces from different things, put it into a new recipe and you come up with with a new story. Mm-hmm. Are you able to do those bits and pieces and and differentiate it enough that oh this is a cloning story it's going to be like Attack of the Clones or this is uh, this is an X and so type of story oh uh, this is just another Hunger Games or this is just another Divergent or it's just another Back to the Future how are you making sure that your uh, your mix of elements is distinct enough that it's that it's your story.
1: That's a really good question. Um, And yeah, the, the puzzle thing is funny because I am a Jigsaw puzzle fanatic, but I never really drew the connection to that in world building until you and a couple of other people have brought it up. And I'm like, yeah, I guess there may be a subconscious connection there. Um, it is tricky because I think every, like like you said, no element of world building is totally unique and you don't really want it to be like you want to have readers be able to, you know, read a description of something and then call back to something they've seen or read before, something that's kind of in our collective consciousness, you know, like cultural references. Um, you know, I have a lot of big towering skyscrapers in my futuristic city Westport and I kind of describe one that's like a giant DNA strand that kind of weaves around itself and then turns into a huge spire with a big helipad for space shuttles at the top of it. So I try to describe it in a way that would maybe make a reader think of like another iconic building they might have seen before, like another futuristic setting, but you do have to have that level of uniqueness and I think that's where kind of the puzzle piece comes together you know you want to have elements that pull from different elements of things that they've seen before that have some recall but then have enough originality that they go oh that's a different spin on it or that's a different way of of kind of looking at it Um, and yeah like I mean with with my world I mean in the sentient it is it is pretty complex and a lot of the reviews have talked about the world building and how dense it is and you've got this very futuristic city with um, all this crazy technology and a lot of big fancy trains and skyscrapers, but then you also have this kind of more remote um, Southwestern compound culture where they're kind of living with bonnets and buckets of water, but they also have futuristic technology. They have, you know, roadways that kind of glow from solar heating and uh, you know, they have futuristic technology in there as well. So, um, I don't know if there's a magic formula to it other than I think when there isn't enough world building, you kind of know it when you read it. Um, It kind of feels a little half formulated. It feels a little incomplete or derivative. Mm. And that's Mm. where in the editing process, you go back and try to find ways to flesh it out more, give it some uniqueness or even just, you know, a character riding by in a train kind of looking out the window and seeing these big towering vertical farms rolling up and, Maybe they're partly abandoned because they're not fully needed anymore and just finding ways to add layers um, into your world as as your characters are going through them.
0: That uh, makes me wonder then when you mentioned the editing and the the going back because I've heard it said and I've had a little bit of experience with this myself, the editing process is probably the most painful part of it because you either have to kill your darling or mm-hmm. you, you know, somebody is sitting there saying your baby is ugly. Let's fix it. Right. Uh, this being your first full length novel. And you know, I, with the short fiction, you do some editing and, and cut and, and change and that. But was that process of editing any more or less of an ordeal with the full-length novel, you know, this being your first one, or was it pretty much the same as as how your other stories have gone?
1: Uh, first novel was definitely the most painful in terms of editing. Um, I've written a couple novels since The Sentient, and I'm working on my fourth one now, and I've definitely learned some things, I think, from the first book that have made editing less painful. Um, one thing, and this is true, I think, for any writer in any genre, don't try to edit as you go. Um, When I first wrote The Sentient, I did a lot of kind of micro editing where I go back a couple chapters and try to make it perfect. And then you get further along and discover, oh, wait, I wasted my time doing that because I need to take out this entire character or I need to completely rethink how I structure this. Um, uh, So definitely don't edit as you go. Um, And yeah, I I definitely um, had to kill some darlings in this one. just based on mistakes I made. I mean, like one example, um, when I first finished my first draft, of course, like a new writer, I thought, oh great, I'm done. I've I've got this all figured out and um, you know, queried it way too early. you know, tried to go look for an agent before it was ready. But then I workshopped it um, and discovered that my first scene was a total mess. It had a really cool bit where the character, is you know running through like a mountain scene and then it shifts and cuts to Hyde Park and I had all this great description of like a futuristic version of Hyde Park and then it turns out she's on a treadmill taking a fitness test and you know as someone who knows writing in science fiction you probably know the problem with that the problem is you're not grounding the reader in anything real off the bat you're kind of confusing and throwing them when in your first pages you should be kind of establishing the character in the world and giving them something to cling on to. Right. So I kind of picked it apart. I obviously had my feelings hurt a little bit, but then I knew they were right about it. And so basically sliced out that entire scene. Um, I am one of those authors who likes to save things in a special word document. So maybe on a novel down the road, I can pull something from it and feel like I haven't totally lost it. But Um, yeah, had had to basically cut that out and it made for a much better uh, opening. And when I went and queried it again, oh, all of a sudden I'm getting more positive feedback and more full requests from agents and all of that. Um, And then, of course, when I ended up getting an agent, I did more edits and we actually did a major one where we cut out an entire character, um, basically a love interest. And that Character was embedded throughout the entire novel. And that was a very painful edit to do because I had to have entire scenes rewritten to have other characters cover what that character was covering. And when you're first presented with a big edit like that, it is kind of hard to, you know, I had to kind of stew on it for a day or two and say, do I really want to do this? And then said, okay, I'll try it. And I started implementing the change and went, oh, this is actually much better. The pacing is better the character wasn't really needed in the big scheme of things. And I can always bring them back in a later book if they are needed at that point. But um, yeah, Uh, for later novels that I've written, I've definitely, um, I think gotten better at plot mapping a little bit ahead of time. Like I I am a bit of a pantser. I don't like to lock myself in too much, but um, you know, getting enough structure in place that I don't create major problems for myself, get that first draft out. And then my editing is a little bit more surgical. Um, going forward
0: you're the you're the second person who's used that that phrase uh being a panster mm-hmm. uh and and for those who are not familiar with that, you're basically writing by the seat of your pants as it were um, are you also uh now that you've got a little bit more experience in plotting and and planning out, are you also able to drop in? pieces that you know that you're going to pick up in later books or are those things, Oh, I need to, I need to go back and do because you have this idea for the second book or the third book. Well, we have to lay the groundwork for that. So now I got to go put it back in. Yeah. But are you, are you able to start doing that now or have you been able to do that from the beginning?
1: Um, it definitely is trickier when you're writing, um, a planned series instead of a standalone novel. Um, I, one of the books I wrote after The Sentient was also intended to be a series, and I definitely, um, it was a little bit easier. Like when you have a high-level plot map, you can kind of say, okay, at this point in the novel, I'm going to throw in this character, and I'm going to throw in this little kernel or this little twist, and it'll pay off in a later novel. Um, with The Sentient, because I did kind of uh, pants it for that first draft, but I still planned it as a series, um, that did come up in the editing where my agent and I kind of worked together and realized I had to change a couple things and, um, you know, set up a couple things that would pave the way for book two and book three because it's intended to be a trilogy. Um, and yeah, I think that's a challenge for every writer, you know, like every book has to have a cohesive plot arc. You've got to kind of make every book satisfying and standalone in its own way, but you've also got a bridge to book two and book three and potentially even beyond and make sure there's, a wider conflict that's going to get resolved at the end. So um, I did it. Um, definitely, I would say it's a lot easier to do if you have a base plot map from the very beginning.
0: And has the response to this book been uh, positive enough that it's encouraged you in planning for the second book and the third book and maybe there's a fourth and maybe there's a fifth? Or are we... Is or, or is it too soon to tell, or you're ready to, to make this into a a twenty book series for the next you know, forty <laughs> some odd years?
1: Uh, definitely. Uh, the the reviews have been encouraging. I've had people ask me when the sequel is coming out. Um, fingers crossed. Uh, you know, it's it's still pretty early. It's been published for about a month, but hoping there's enough interest that um, the trilogy happens. Uh, I will say it will definitely you can quote me on this, it'll be a trilogy and nothing more. Um, I kind of have a very specific ending and you really don't want to take the book beyond uh, the ending in book three. There's kind of um, nowhere you want to go after that. And I will say that I have had the ending uh, for book three in mind pretty early from uh, when I wrote The Sentient, you know, I think about halfway through, I had that, that very ending very clear in my mind it's it's vivid it's there it's been planned uh the challenge is really just getting there and kind of setting up book two and three to get to that particular ending but um yeah that that is the plan and the hope is to have this be a a three book series
0: Uh, in the chat sci fi snobs asking is this series aimed at a certain age would it be suitable for a 14 year old for his 14 year old daughter
1: It is, like, intended to be adult sci-fi, but um, I think content-wise, it it would be appropriate enough for a teenager. Um, I guess it depends on your comfort level. Um, The Sentient does have a little bit of profanity, uh, a little bit of some adult themes that come up, um, but, uh, yeah, I would say adult sci-fi that's fairly accessible to teenagers.
0: Do you write with a particular audience in mind, or is is it here's the story, and it just falls wherever it falls? or do you do you plan that out? You have an idea and you sit there and go, "Oh, this would be a good y a story or this would be good uh, hard military, or this is a horror flick or something like that. Mm-hmm. or do you have do you, can you categorize your ideas fairly early?
1: I think fairly early. Um, Sometimes I feel like my books do graze um, the line between adult and YA. Um, And like The Sentient does have a kind of younger female protagonist who's sort of finding her way in life. So it could potentially be written as a YA, but um, I always, I I knew from the themes that I wanted to tackle in the book that I wanted to make it an adult sci-fi. And kind of similar to another novel I'm working on right now, it could be a why if I wanted it to, but I do like having the freedom to kind of write it for an adult sci-fi audience. Um, yeah, I guess like, you know, every author has to think about their readership to a point and who am I writing this for? You can't just purely make it, you know, your own, your own thoughts on the page. Um, So yeah, I I try to kind of categorize early on, this is adult sci-fi, this is near future, this is you know dystopian or however I want to categorize it. Um, And uh, there is an element of horror, I think, in quite a lot of my novels. I don't intend to write horror, but um, some of that does creep in just to some of the scenes that I write. So um, I think people who have a sci-fi horror crossover interest um, would definitely like The Sentient for that.
0: Is horror someplace where you want to, to move into that, that part of the genre? Or are, are you staking your claim in science fiction? You're going to stay there for a while? Or, or where, where, what's next? What?
1: Uh, I think for now, um, I, I love science fiction. That's kind of what I have a million ideas in my head of sci-fi novels I want to write. So I'm kind of sticking in that lane. Uh, I'd say never say never with horror. I'm definitely reading a lot more horror now than I was before, and I, I'm liking it. Um, but I like the idea of writing science fiction that just has that little bit of a horror element to it, just you know some spooky themes, uh, dealing like you know dealing with multiverses and consciousness. I think there's just so much opportunity to bring horror into a sci-fi setting.
0: Uh, the the conversation comes generation. up every now and again when we talk about Star Trek and the transporter and this yeah. idea, and this goes this goes back uh, decades, the question of consciousness and the question of the soul. And mm-hmm. Dr. McCoy's concerns about having his atoms scattered across the universe, uh, notwithstanding, there is a, a legitimate question there. Does this machine, and this is actually, it actually came up in in one of my philosophy classes in college once, where is the machine killing the person and creating a duplicate? And if that's the case, what is the status of the soul? Is there a soul in this Mm -hmm. this new version of the person who's just been transported? And I guess that question comes up as well when you talk about cloning, because... Mm -hmm. A, a person, what makes a person? A person is a person, why? And the mm-hmm. idea of a clone, if you have somebody who is a duplicate, you know, you have another Nadia Afifi, what separates the two? Which one is real? Yep. And how do you determine? Because there are some people who don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in a soul. But that question does come up. What What makes a person a person in terms of sentience and consciousness? Do you, how how difficult is that theme to explore? Were you were you running into that just peripherally on the side, or is, or does that factor in quite a bit in this in this particular story?
1: It factors in quite a bit, and I have to almost be careful because I could give away uh, key plot points. But um, consciousness, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. Uh, a very big theme in the sentient, and there's kind of a, a bit of a twist at the end where you learn that the cloning project is a bit more than just a simple cloning project. And there are scientists who have a fascination with consciousness that are trying to push the boundaries of it with cloning, um kind of using cloning to um, you know explore consciousness and consciousness after death. Um, and yeah, it is it is a complex thing to write about because I mean, I find consciousness fascinating, but, it's such um, a difficult thing to even define. Like I've read tons of articles where we all disagree on what consciousness even means, you know, is it, is it self-awareness? Is it an amalgamation of like your, your memories and your personal experiences? Cause yeah, like in that case with a clone or even like a version of yourself in an alternate world, I mean, you're, different if you have different perceptions and memories and experiences. But um, yeah, at what point are you unique? Um, It's a really interesting uh, theme for me. Um, And yeah, I explore it uh, the best I can. And, you know, kind of getting to the theme we were talking about earlier of not pushing things down people's throats. You know, um, a lot of this book and the series is going to be kind of a conversation with myself where... I kind of wrestle with those questions and the characters wrestle with those questions and eventually it all comes to a big climactic head
0: growing up in the middle east what drew you to science fiction as a genre what 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 is it about science fiction fantasy horror that keeps you coming back to it that's what you want to read that's what you want to write
1: it's um Sci-fi has always been interesting to me. I mean, part of it is just the fun of the of the technology of imagining what the future can be. Um, I think growing up in the Middle East, it's obviously um, a very kind of politically charged region at the moment. There's a lot of conflict. Um, there's a lot of religious influence, Um, there's, you know, like I'm, my my dad is originally Palestinian, we have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and sci-fi always interested me as a way to kind of explore contentious present-day issues in a different kind of setting, so being able to comment on things without directly commenting on them, or kind of exploring the underlying themes without being able to say, okay, this is about this particular individual or this particular conflict, so I kind of got into sci-fi for that liberating element of it. And I also like, I think there's another way it's liberating in that you can kind of imagine um, a different kind of future um, or a different different way for society to progress towards. And I I love, like it, it isn't, The Sentient is set in North America, but some of my short fiction and some of my future novels are set in like a futuristic version of the Middle East. And I like kind of exploring that merging of, Tradition, you know, some elements of it stay the same, but um, Middle East also kind of evolves and progresses in other ways. Um, so it's kind of fun as uh, an author, kind of very trapped in the present, to uh, imagine what could be.
0: Well, and especially now, yeah. given how things are changing so quickly over there with the with the various different uh, treaties and peace accords, and and suddenly yep. you've got this... Wait a minute. There is a possibility that everybody might be able to get along. I mean, nobody has <laughs> has foreseen a a successful outcome like that uh, for a long while. And now here we have the beginnings of it. Now it may it may take hold. It might not. But now that opens up some possibilities as far as you know futurism and and speculative fiction in a world mm-hmm. where you do have the Middle East at uh, some sense of peace with each other there may be some friction of course there's always going to be that element of you know looking sideways at each other but maybe this now opens up some possibilities for stories that otherwise would never even be considered as as possible
1: yep yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hopeful that someday um, we do have peace in the region and we all all learn to get along. I, I don't know if uh, the current developments are actually going to um, are, are actually going to result in that happening. Um, I, I'm a little bit skeptical. Like I'm always hopeful, but skeptical. But um, yeah, I think uh, it would be interesting to see if there is a kind of a growing trend of futurism and kind of speculation in with Middle Eastern writers. Um, I've I've noticed more of it. I want to read more of it, but um, it is exciting. Um, And alternate history is another fun area. Like um, there's a book I read recently called a dead gin in Cairo um, by I think P. Jelly Clark. I I hope I pronounced his name correctly. Um, But uh, yeah, it's kind of an alternate version of Cairo, a little bit steampunk, but has, you know, kind of incorporates gin, which are kind of middle Eastern folklore thing and, Uh, kind of a little bit of fantasy and it was just so fun to read you know it's it's, it's fun as um, a Middle Eastern writer to kind of disconnect a little bit from our present day because it can be depressing to watch the news and all you see is conflict and economic stagnation and social stagnation and kind of you know um, all of that negativity and kind of to take it and twist it and take take traditions that you like and incorporate it into either an alternate world or a futuristic world. So,
0: Any plans for a steampunk story anytime soon?
1: No, but now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it. It almost seems like there's, there's growing up for me, there are particular types of stories that I like to read. You know, I have my preferences. I've never been really big into horror, but I can appreciate, you know, the the success that people have in that and the fans that that are there. Do you have a tendency? Uh, do you try to avoid writing the same kinds of stories you've you've grown up reading? Are you sitting there saying, "Oh, I don't want it to be like Ursula Le Guin." You know, I don't want it to be too much like Sanderson or Gaiman or you, you how hard is it, how much of a challenge is it to find your voice among all of the different influences that you've had?
1: It it is tricky because, you know, authors definitely influence you. You you know, I read read Gaiman and say, oh, that's great. I, I wish I could do that. Or I wish I could do something like that, that has my own personal touch. But um, there is just so much sci-fi out there that you do want to be that person who comes out with something new and and completely different from what you've seen before. Um, it's impossible to do that entirely, but I think I tend to lean on the side of, you know, trying to hone for my own imagination, you know, for my own upbringing, uh, things that matter to me, themes I want to explore, and then, uh, you know... Um, try try to try to limit my influences i think we were talking earlier like what books directly inspired the sentient and i had a hard time trying to pinpoint anything you know i have authors whose style definitely influences me or the way they approach things influences me but um my stories i kind of try to make my own as much as i can
0: have you found yourself writing a story and suddenly you look at it and you realize that you're rewriting the martian chronicles and you have to scrap everything and start over
1: (laughs) that has happened a few times um i've definitely uh copied the matrix once or twice you know kind of world within a world um and yeah a couple of other things where um yeah i had a i had one that was set on the moon that was actually a little too close to the martian chronicles and uh scrap that and it always it always hurts to scrap a short story um uh, but I try to tell myself every, every attempt is something you've learned from, and that usually turns into a better story down the road.
0: Speaking of learning from your writing, what has this process, uh, moving from short stories to now long fiction, have you, have you learned anything about yourself as you've become this writer, this person who is now doing this, and this is your thing as have, have you gained some insights into Nadia?
1: Wow. Um, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, I suppose I have, I mean, um, I've definitely learned wells of patience from the writing process. Um, I think uh, learning to overcome my perfectionism, because during that first time writing The Sentient, that first draft, I was focused on perfection. I've learned to forgive myself a little bit more with later drafts, you know, kind of just to write what feels right, you know, get a plot out there, get it, get characters out there, and then... Um, and then go from there. Uh, one thing now that you got me thinking about that I've learned about myself, um, I, I tend to, I think my characters always tend to have an element of myself in them. And then also an element of who I would like to be and then probably who I was in the past. Um, I think definitely in The Sentient, there are multiple characters that have pieces of myself in there. In um, reading them, I definitely see um, see some of my flaws and some of my (laughs) some of my limitations come out in in my stories but but in a good way Um,
0: and do you have other characters that are based on people that you know and they read this book and they go oh hey there I am
1: (laughs) I try to bring take a couple degrees of separation Um, definitely there's characters in there that have been influenced by people but uh, try not to make try not to make them clone copies Um, partly for that reason and partly because I like to let my imagination do the work and um flesh them out a little bit more
0: okay so the book that you're working on now what can you tell us about it so far what's what's currently on your plate
1: uh so i'm kind of doing two things at once uh, i'm working on the sequel to uh the Sentient, um and about a quarter of the way through that um and then i also have a completely uh, different book um that's in the works that is uh, set in uh, Beirut, um, kind of a futuristic version of Beirut. My main character is a parkour racer. She kind of practices free running and parkour along the rooftops of Beirut and gets locked into a, um, a, a conspiracy again between uh, two pharmacy cartels uh, that are creating a new kind of mind-altering drug that alters your perception of time. Uh, so basically can turn a minute under the drug into an hour, it kind of plays with your time perception. Uh, and it also has some very dark side effects that turns into a revenge story. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun to write. I'm kind of editing that as I'm working on The Congregant um, and really excited about that book and uh, hoping it it finds a home uh, on a bookshelf someday. So, um how, yeah like as i'm talking oh go ahead
0: no i was i was just going to say how did you decide that your main character was into parkour is that something that you do or you know people who do that
1: uh, i do have a friend who practices free running um but uh yeah i've never tried it um i would probably um injure myself pretty badly i don't have the best knees for it <laughs> but I've, I've always uh i've always found it fascinating and enjoyed watching those parkour videos but um yeah, it was just a, a different kind of twist for a character. Um, and I wanted to kind of create a, another strong female character that was a breakaway from Amira and the sentient and kind of make her more of a, a physical kind of person, someone who kind of survives by her strength and her agility and her, her quick reactions. And uh, it made for some fun action scenes as well. And yeah, I definitely like uh, bringing action into my stories. <laughs>
0: Is there anything that you try to avoid in your stories? Is there something you sit there and you just say, I'm just not going to put this in any of my stories whatsoever?
1: Um, that's a good question. Um, I guess like one thing I don't really write a lot about is, I mean, I'm, I'm not really into space opera or any kind of military sci-fi. Um, I do work for the VA, but I don't really have a military background. So trying to write, not to write about things that I really don't know about. Um, Another thing is, um, I think this is like common for a lot of authors, like kind of gratuitous violence and sexual assault, you know, kind of using that as like a a plot arc or like a revenge motive. Um, I like writing uh, female characters that are not the kind of boilerplate, strong, kick-ass female character. Like I don't like having characters that have to solve problems through, like, violence or guns or shooting their way out of a situation. Uh, So one thing I was kind of conscious about in The Sentient is that Amira, my main character, um, kind of, you know, isn't, uh, you know, a strong kind of fighting kind of heroine. You know, she doesn't know combat. She can't fire a weapon. She has to navigate a very dangerous world using her intelligence, uh, using her empathy, kind of using her ability to rely on other people. So kind of, Sort of non-traditional, what what you might call more feminine uh, kind of ways of resolving conflict, and even my parkour racer character is a similar thing. You know, she's got this talent for leaping across buildings, but um, that's about the extent of of, of what she can do. Um,
0: are there franchises? Any kind of any kind? Because of, you mentioned, you know, you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica. You've got uh, um, you mentioned the strong female type, and that immediately brings to mind mm-hmm. Ellen Ripley, Sarah Connor, that kind of thing. Are mm-hmm. are you open to the possibility of writing tie-in fiction at all?
1: tie-in fiction you mean uh, kind of connected to like an existing universe like Battlestar Galactica
0: Right if you write you want to write a Battlestar Galactica uh, story or if you want to write a Star Trek or you know somebody comes in and says hey we'd like you to play in this sandbox over here how would you how would you respond
1: That could potentially be fun um definitely something i might be interested down the road um it could be a challenge for me because I do enjoy creating my own characters and creating my world. And I guess the limitation of tie-in is you are kind of restricted to what people before you have created, but it also gives you an opportunity to kind of expand on that or, or give it a a twist or subvert it in an interesting way. So yeah, that, that does intrigue me.
0: And Sci-Fi Snob says the kick-ass girl is becoming a boring trope. Uh, It's almost, it's almost like, not necessarily the same as the Mary Sue, but it's in that same that same toolbox where you know there's there's too much shorthand involved in those characters. You don't have a whole lot of development.
1: Oh yeah, I, I agree that it's a little bit boring at the point at this point, and also a bit lazy. You know, um, when you have a character who just punches and kicks her way out of a situation, uh, it's way less interesting to me to read than someone who has to get creative or find some intelligent way to get out of the burning building, you know, or away from the bad guy.
0: No. Is there a type of character that you haven't used yet that you're just dying to put into a, a story?
1: Um, maybe kind of a, a main character who's a bit more of an antagonist. You know, my, my main characters largely tend to do the right thing. Um, and I would like to kind of write a charismatic, you know, not quite villain, but you know, a kind of morally dubious character who kind of comes around by the end.
0: All right. Well, we are looking are forward funny. to all of that. The book that is, uh, that is out now is The Sentient, and you can get it in various different places. It came out September 8th and uh, the website, com, And she is also on Twitter under Nadoodles. Where, how did, how did that come, come about? Is that a nickname for you or is that it,
1: it it is a nickname um yeah given to me by a, by a high school friend who might actually be in the chat <laughs>
0: uh, I see a Vicky Vicks. she says I love how Nadia's brain works so
1: <laughs> that's her
0: <laughs> all right well Nadia fifi thank you very much for being here today and and talking with us about the book good luck with that and and future endeavors we'll uh, have you back on to talk about uh, those other projects when they're ready to go and we'll have you back
1: That'd be great. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun.
0: All right. Well, uh, you've survived your, your first, uh, big live interview. So, uh, so congratulations <laughs> and all of you. Thanks very much for being in the chat and, uh, leaving your thoughts and sharing your comments. If you are, uh, viewing this as a video in playback, uh, you can leave a comment. If you're listening to it as a podcast, don't forget we are live Monday through Thursday, on, uh, on sci fi for metv Monday through Thursday at noon central. And uh, don't forget the 10% discount when you use the promo code sci fi for me 10 over at superherostuff.com. And that is going to do it for us today. Thanks very much for being here. We've got a full week, and we are just now in the middle of it, so more on the way here at sci fi Me TV. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio, copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.